Hello and welcome to Dog Talk with me, your host, Nick Benger, the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world. Hey, welcome to today's podcast. If you're a dog trainer who wants to help more people and make more money with your amazing dog training skills, then you should check out Dom Hodgson's Grow Your Pet Business Fast business coaching programs. I was a member of Dom's Pet Business Inner Circle, and in 2017, I attended his inaugural Poodle to Pitbull Pet Business Bootcamp. And we've also just worked out, so I'll be going to Impact too. So I can state without question that His marketing methods are effective. They will help you to make more money. By listening to Dom's advice, I personally increased my training fees by four times the original amount. Dom has twice been a guest on this podcast. And earlier this year, direct response marketing strategist Dan Kennedy called Dom Europe's number one business coach of dog trainers, professional dog walkers and pet sitters. So you can book a place on Dom's next event, Impact, the Pet Business Marketing Success Summit by going to www.growyourpetbusinessfast.com slash impact. Or you can check out his free 33 ideas by going to www.growyourpetbusinessfast.com slash 33 ideas. I also just wanted to acknowledge that this is the third year anniversary of this podcast and I'm so happy with the amount of success it has had especially since I started posting regularly again in August we've released over 20 podcasts and it's just grown and grown I'm just so thankful that people have continued to support this so one person that was really pivotal in helping me kind of get this all off his feet was John McGuigan John came on the show as a first guest ever when I had no listeners, I had no one following me and he gave his time and that was extremely kind of him. And one thing that I really want to highlight is John is currently bringing over some of the best trainers from around the world to speak in Glasgow and in August he's booked Hannah Brannigan, the host of the hugely popular Drinking from the Toilet podcast to give a two-day workshop. They're going to be covering motivation, proofing distractions, focus and control. So if you're a dog trainer or you compete in dog sports, then you should really check this out. To get tickets and see more details, go to glasgowdogtrainer.co.uk and click on courses. Today, I'm talking to Debbie Jacobs. Debbie is the author of a guide to living with and training a fearful dog. And she's also the author of Does My Dog Need Prozac? She's well known for her blog, fearfuldogs.com. So let's get into it. For people that aren't aware of your blog, perhaps if you could describe a little bit about yourself and, and what you do and how you maybe got interested in in the topic of fearful dogs sure happy to uh, i've been a bit um negligent of the blog for a while i'd i'd written it for years and kind of felt like i'd said everything that needed to be said um though every once in a while i do go back and probably should go back to to writing more routinely um and i also 
have been uh, my energy is often taken up by the fearful dog group that I host on Facebook. But okay, so my excuses aside, um, in 2005, I went down to work at one of the hurricane uh, animal triage sites that were set up after hurricanes Katrina and Rita. Most people might remember it from um, uh, those hurricanes that was back in uh, down in New Orleans, that area. And um, prior to that, I had been involved in I had pet dogs and done some hobby training and I was involved in working with our local shelter, doing volunteer work, uh, working with volunteers in the shelter, having been sort of exposed and turned on to uh, using food to train, that I was really excited to share that with people coming into the shelter to interact with dogs. And then I'd also been um, another part of my, my work was I used to organize educational and active adventures around the world, but more specifically to countries where people spoke Spanish, including Puerto Rico. And so I was, uh, they have a really horrible overpopulation problem there with dogs and cats and in some places even horses. And so I began bringing dogs up from Puerto Rico uh, to be adopted in my area, which is in southern Vermont in New England in the United States. And, um, and some of those dogs were shy and, and I didn't really know much. I sort of took whatever the shelter manager or trainers told me was, you know, was the case like, oh, he'll be fine or don't worry, they just need more time. Um, but then in 2005, I had a dog transported and that was Sonny. I had him transported up from one of the rescue sites. It was uh, called Camp Katrina. And when I met him, I realized that he seemed a bit shy, but I thought, well, you know, as my husband likes to say about dogs that come and live with us, no dogs suffer here. And they basically land in paradise. I live in a rural area. We do walks off woods in the leash. Um, I mean, off leash. And um, dogs just have a great, have a great life here. Except he, this dog showed up and didn't move out of the corner for, for weeks. I mean, just I'd never seen anything like it um, and was a bit and was a bit mystified because I thought, you know, what's happening here and how do I change this? So that was sort of the catalyst for me um, to go on this journey of trying to understand the best ways to work with dogs who are struggling with fear-based behavior challenges. And I realized that I certainly understood a lot, but there was more that I didn't understand about how fear impacts behavior and how we can help them. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like this is a, a hot topic right now because, well, certainly where I'm based in England, because we have a huge amount of dogs that are being imported from different countries and, and come over and uh, a, a, a very large, uh, probably I would say even go as far as to say a, a large majority of them are fearful. Um, well, understandably so, you know, when you get shipped from one country to the other and it's, it's a hell of a uh, cultural change for them. Um, so... Yeah, that's interesting in itself, and it's interesting that you've you've had a background of of doing a bit of that yourself, moving. Um, I, I assume stray dogs from one country to another. 
Yes, the the dogs that were generally transported up um, from Puerto Rico uh, were often the best ones are are the street dogs, are the dogs that have been they they sort of learned to work the system, the ones that know how to get a tourist to give them their sandwich. I mean, those, they're actually really, um, they can be absolutely fabulous dogs in part because they have been problem solving since puppyhood. They haven't been restrained or confined. So they've been exposed to novelty. They, uh, function around other dogs. They function around people. Uh, and the, the ones that I want to say the ones that were that I got quite often made just absolutely fabulous pets because they just took all that experience that they had from living on the street and interacting with people and other dogs and surviving. And um, they just sort of took that experience. And when they came to live here in Vermont, they just took it and ran with it. it now, that said, it doesn't mean there weren't, you know, a, a number of them that didn't do well and didn't struggle. Uh, but uh, for the most part, when they were chosen well, they made great pets. But I will say that I did stop fostering those dogs and taking those dogs regularly because I stopped trusting that I was going to get dogs who, other than needing some basic training, and a, and a bit of adjustment time uh, were going to be that I was going to get those dogs and that I was afraid that I was going to start getting dogs that were a bit more problematic, that were going to require more time, more effort, and may unfortunately be dogs who were just never going to be good pets uh, because they came from a, a set of circumstances that didn't really set them up uh, well. And I did not want to, I'd already had too many dogs and knew from experience, uh, as happened with Sonny, who I, I didn't bring him to Vermont because I wanted him. I brought him to Vermont because I was going to adopt him out. And when I saw just how bad off he was, realized this is not a pet dog and I was not going to move him into a home where the owners were going to be unprepared for what they were going to get. Yeah, it's a really interesting point because, I mean, we had this discussion in one of the early podcasts with uh, Lisa Tenzindoma, um, and she was talking about how some of the dogs that are in these countries are really aren't, aren't fit to, you know, be in pet homes. They would, in some ways, be better off just being left to their own devices. But the problem being, for the people that are out there rescuing them, is telling which ones are which, you know, and it, and you often don't know until you've kind of brought them over. Yeah, I I think that that um, I will say that that that's probably true in that they cannot tell, but that it, that I don't think that that should be a blanket assumption that we can't tell. I think that what happens is that there is this hope springs eternal that any dog with time and love can end up being okay, that they just need the right home, they just need the right handler. And hey, look, that may be true, but it just may be the case that those 
right homes and right handlers are very few and far between uh, far between so in reality there it, 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 they're not going to be successful it isn't going to work for them and i know for myself one of the reasons i did what i did was to help support the people who were on the front lines it's miserable hard heartbreaking soul-sucking work to be out there and see these animals struggling and dying and being ill and and not not being able to do anything about it or wanting to do something so then you end up with a dog who it might not be a good candidate to be a pet dog and now what do you do with it yeah, that's 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 a interesting question, and um, yeah, we covered that as well. Because I mean, you don't really don't have the option to send them back. It's, it's kind of like you're stuck with them now, and and you just have to do the best that you can do. One of the things that I, I wanted to cover as well, because I mean, we've gone down a foreign dogs rabbit hole already, but that you get similar issues with um, all kinds of dogs. You know, there's plenty of fearful dogs out there. I mean. From my own experiences, we got a, a rescue dog from a puppy farm and he didn't come out of his crate um, for the first few weeks. You know, he was too nervous to even kind of go to the toilet. It was terrible. Um, but now you wouldn't know it. But um, it's just interesting to see the, how some dogs can bounce back very quickly. Because, I mean, now he he greets everyone. He's very enthusiastic. People wouldn't know that he had come from that background. And then other dogs seem to not quite have the same resilience. So uh, w- one thing I wanted to ask you was, how do you, in those early days, when, say, you, you get a dog that's fearful, how do you approach things? Well, one of the things that I, I think of is because we don't have a crystal ball, and we can't look into the future and know what the dog's potential is. And we don't have a microscope that lets us look and say, oh, my gosh, we're, what we're looking at here is a, p- a particular gen- genetic makeup. Um, what we what we can know, uh, it doesn't mean that, that the information we have about a dog isn't, isn't helpful to us at all. But what we can know is this is a dog that, you know, what its background was, when, at what age, uh, did we manage to rescue, you know, pull it off the streets or pull it out of the woods or find it under somebody's porch where it's been living for, for months? Um, we can take that information and try to plug it in, knowing what we know about socialization and development. Uh, but to, to answer your question, I think the way that we think about it is we look at this animal and treat it as though it was an emergency, a medical emergency, and we need to do the right thing now. And the right thing from my my perspective <laughs> is the dog needs to feel safe. The dog needs to stop feeling afraid. Now, how do we accomplish that? Currently, when I look at it, we have we have Uh, medical interventions, we have medications that can actually help kind of, uh, I think of it as as sort of a stop the blood, stop the bleeding. 
how could we stop the bleeding? Well, you know, compression, tourniquet, what are we going to do? With these dogs, we do have medications that can help them stop feeling as fearful or as anxious. Um, the other is management. Just stop doing whatever is scaring the dog. It sounds so simple, uh, but it's often very challenging for people to do. Yeah, so one of the first things I normally recommend people doing is is trying to give the dog access to a very quiet, you know, area where there isn't a lot of traffic, where they can just kind of chill out. Because one of the issues, of course, with those kind of dogs is you get what we all tend to refer to as trigger stacking, where the cortisol is built up and you need that to go down in order to for your dog to kind of come out of its shell a bit. So I, I'm completely with you on the management thing. So when you when you mention medication, I'm just wondering on a clarification point because it sounded then as if you would just do that with any dog that showed fear in in the first few days or whatever of you getting it. I assume that's not what you meant. I could mean it. I mean, I think the thing is that what we, first of all, want to, I mean, I know that when I say this, people go, oh, she's the drug lady. You know, she just pushes drugs, pushes drugs. And honestly, I am about as far from that in my, as anybody. I mean, I, I, I'm resistant to, you know, I'm not, I'm not one of those, you know, that stereotype of just throw drugs at a problem. However, one of the things we know is that it is so easy to install fear in a dog. Once an animal is conditioned to be afraid of something, it is really hard to change that. There's that piece. The other piece of it is that for many of these medications that are used, the side effects are well known and they are uh, often uh, not so drastic that should they should we experience them that we're going to lose the dog i mean i I, I say to people all the time look you can try this your dog is not going to explode i promise you if you go to your vet and talk to your vet about a, a medication that is going to lower your dog's anxiety and you try it there's a they're they're not going to explode on you and if you don't like what you see you talk to your vet you can change the medication um, you can add medications. You can change dosages. If you talk to vet behaviorists about this, one of the things that quite common um, to hear is you want to treat this sooner rather than later. Because a lot of people, and I talk to pet owners all the time, they think of meds as a last resort. It's, and to me, it's like waiting to see whether or not that infection that's eating your toes is going to resolve on its own. And then you wait, and as your toes are falling off, you go to the doctor and say, hey, look, I think I'd like to try you know, an antibiotic now. And they say, well, that's, you know, that's great, but you should have come to us a few months ago. And I frequently talk to pet owners and it's happening less and less. I mean, I'm really happy to say that more people are finding me because they're, they're understanding that they're dealing with fear and they find, you know, fearfuldogs.com and they go, Oh, you know, here's this person who talks about fear. And, and rather than finding me years down the road, 
when I say to them, well, how long has your dog been demonstrating these behaviors? Oh, you know, since I've had her, when I got her when she was three months old, and how old is she now? Well, she's seven. Okay, well, that's a very different picture than somebody who says to me, I've got this puppy, it's three months old, I've had it for two weeks, and she's still hiding under the bed. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that it, there has to be a, a distinction drawn, doesn't there? And and I don't know if dog owners are going to be capable of doing that. And I, I guess the responsibility shouldn't really fall on them to make a differentiation between the dog that is likely to come through this stage of fear of his own accord without medical intervention, of which there are many, and then the dog that actually is very likely to need some... Uh, amount of drugs well i mean here's here's a way to look at it let's say you have a migraine and it is a raging migraine and you know that in two days your migraine will be gone do we say hey you could got you got through that without medical intervention why use anything to treat your migraine and 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 but we don't look at fear that way we don't look at it as though the animal is actually suffering and the suffering itself whatever kind of process is going on and i'm not a vet or a vet behaviorist and i don't tell people put your dog on meds i say talk to your vet about meds that's my go-to because i'm not a vet that i can't say hey you should put your dog on meds i just highly encourage people to go talk to a vet about meds because i look at that dog and i say that dog is suffering and i know if i want to if somebody says to me well how long should we wait i think you know how long it takes a dog who has you know who's likely to have a quick turnaround um, that I'm going to see it. It's it. People are all week or two weeks. It's like no, in five minutes. If I walk into a room and I see a dog and I say, "Hey, I'm the cheese lady," that dog, the dogs that are going to have that kind of oh, this is this is a good thing. I'm going to see it. Why would I make them wait weeks? Why would I make that dog suffer for weeks if we had something that could help them? That's the part, you know, that's the piece of sort of this change in thinking um, that we have the technology and the technology keeps getting better, that behaviors keep um, continue to become more refined as to which medications they use to address certain types of of anxiety and phobias that we see. Um, why wouldn't I do it? Mm. And the other side of this, I'm going to say, is that ultimately it's not only more efficient in helping us get, you know, to train the dog, it's less expensive. Because I'll tell you what, Nick, when you have a fearful dog, you might as well have dollar signs on your forehead. Because you need to just, you walk into a pet shop, and there are going to be dozens, if not hundreds of options available to you to spend your money on to work with a dog. And most of them have never been tested. Most of them have never shown that they actually work better than nothing or a medication that you can get by prescription from your vet that has a track record that we know the side effects, we know the dosages, and we know the quality of the product that we're providing. So what medications are you referring to specifically? Because something like fluoxetine that we spoke about before our podcast, that takes weeks to to work anyway, doesn't it? 
It it can, yes. But there are others that are commonly used in the U.S. So you're mentioning the antidepressants. Of the antidepressants, there are different types of antidepressants. There are selective serotonin re- reuptake inhibitors, the SSRIs. There are tr- the tricyclic antidepressants, which were some of the earlier antidepressants that came on the market. And we want to remember that before these antidepressants were used for people, they were tested on animals. Then they've been used on humans for decades, and then some of them were actually tested on animals. So here in the U.S., the ones that were tested and branded for use with dogs were fluoxetine, Prozac for humans, and it was called Reconcile when it was marketed for animals, for dogs. The other was a tricyclic um, uh, clomipramine, which is marketed as Clomacom. So those were were actually tested on dogs and are branded and and sold specifically for dogs. Uh, However, quite often in here in the States, people just get the um, it's the same. They get the the human brand um, at their at their pharmacy. Mm -hmm. So so we have the antidepressants. The others are the um, that are commonly used are the benzodiazepines which are medications like alprazolam and clonazepam. I'm guessing if you've just acquired a dog and you want to relieve some of these stress symptoms, sharpish, then you want something that's going to work very quickly and also not be a huge problem to get the dog off of at a later stage if necessary. Right. Yes. And there are a number of different medications now. It's not unusual. This is really interesting. I I found this. Um, it, we have the fear-free vetting movement uh, or that's that's happening here in the States where vets and trainers and and anyone of the, that's in, in the industry um, can get certified in um, fear f- working with animals in a fear-free way in ways to minimize or eliminate fear. And it's not uncommon for vets now to be using other medications like, um, and again, this is these, I'm not making recommendations here. I want to be really clear about that. I'm just mentioning that these are some of the medications that are commonly being used. Medications like gabapentin or trazodone in dogs where um, they're, they're just recommending that people give them to their cats or their dogs before a vet visit to help lower their fear. Uh, Cat owners or even some of the fear-free vets are recommending catnip, you know, to to help lower the the cat's anxiety. Now, many vets are going to want to do a blood draw because they want to just get a a baseline to make sure that the animal is healthy before they recommend meds. Um, So, uh, but the thing is, is that dogs don't, they can't open the med bottles themselves. So as far as dependency goes, we can control that because we can, by understanding how to use the med and then how to uh, responsibly uh, wean the dog off of the med, um, we can control that with the animal. So it's a reasonable concern, but we're in control of it. Hmm. How can you tell how much progress a dog is making if if it's hard to distinguish what is the medication and what is the dog just settling into its environment? 
Yeah, it's, that's the $24,000 question um, because we can't have the control. Like we can't go back and say, all right, let's do it without drugs this time <laughs> and see what we get. So in many cases, it, it is hard to know. And I struggled with that a lot, wondering, is it just time or is it the meds? Mm. And um, But what does happen, and, and some people will do it, is they will – have the dog on the medication for a certain amount of time, six months, a year, whatever it is, and then they can test it. And they and this is all done under the guidance and supervision of a vet or a vet behaviorist. And we say, okay, I think I want to see whether or not I can take my dog off this medication. And we test it. And then we, we see what we get. Yeah, it's interesting. This is probably a different approach to w- what I've taken so you know this is part of the reason of me doing the podcast because i get to talk to people like you and learn things um because a lot of the time i'm seeing dogs are often again you know come from foreign countries or maybe they've come from a puppy farm background and and usually my recommendation has always been first we're just going in with management and just trying to create uh a least stressful um environment as possible to let that cortisol leave the dog's system and then get an idea of of what this dog's state actually is and then uh, then at which point if the dog seems in a, at a point where it's likely to need medication then we'll go the route of um using something like floxetine um but i've never i've never heard that before of of just doing it straight away um and and then coming off at a later stage. That's interesting to me. Well, I think, I mean, I think one of the things that we can assume with many of these dogs is that they're going to be stressed. And I, I also think sort of we have this focus on cortisol that, you know, we, we, can, we can measure it and there's studies about it and there's different uh, – some of the studies about cortisol show when it, uh, when it sort of um, – uh, gets to a, a some kind of baseline. We don't know what a dog's baseline cortisol level is. What if the dog has a high baseline cortisol level to begin with, um, which may be indicated either through, it may be uh, based on a, a disease like Cushing's or, or some other kind of adrenal problem, mm-hmm. or that we've got a dog who's got, who's kind of functioning and has sort of this sort of baseline chronic high um cortisol level. I mean, we don't know. And I think that when we start to sort of make assumptions based on, I mean, I'm not saying that you're wrong to think that there's any problem with, hey, let's give the dog a break and let's give the dog a place to to chill out. But the other assumption is that we have a dog who in this isolated area is actually feeling safe based on where it comes from. I mean, if you take a street dog who's lived on the street and sort of wandered around with other dogs and 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 now we've stuck them in a in a, a, a an isolated area by themselves so they're socially isolated i don't know that they're going to necessarily feel safer being isolated when they've grown up not being isolated so again i mean i think we're sort of jumping we we kind of jump to conclusions and make assumptions about about it um and again, I'm not saying that it's an unreasonable sort of logical leap to make when you're thinking about it. And certainly, you know, it's probably not as bad as just kind of throwing them into the mix in the house. Um, but there are certainly plenty of dogs who might feel better 
rather than being alone in a, in a house, um, they might feel better if they were thrown into a mix with a bunch of highly social um, other dogs. I mean, that might be what helps them feel better. So I don't know. <laughs> <What's>, <laughs> so that, no, no, I understand. Well, I'm certainly making a huge amount of assumptions and we're kind of treating an imaginary dog right now because, uh, yeah, it absolutely is completely context specific. Yeah, yeah. And and I guess my point is not that, hey, everybody, you should put your dog on meds, but that it should be that we should that we have this kind of knee jerk reaction. We are so averse to thinking about it that it's almost it's almost a kind of a, a it, it, sometimes it seems pathological to me, this sort of aversion to using these medications that. It's sort of like, well, we see it in other ways. I mean, we see it with the vaccination, you know, this sort of anti-vax movement of, you know, bad, evil thing, when the reality is that the evidence shows us that these can be helpful. And the negative side effects are actually um, usually fewer and less harmful than not you know, taking the vaccine or not putting the dog on on a medication. So really what I'm I, I may be sort of going to the far end of the spectrum here, hoping that it will put something in somebody's head that they'll say, oh, maybe maybe I will talk to my vet about meds uh, because and to get down to the to the real nitty gritty of it is we're dog trainers. <laughs> We're we're the we know that we need to then help the dog learn new responses because we don't just expect the meds to do the thing, though the meds can certainly help, especially if you don't have experience owners and you don't have experience handlers and we can't manage the dog so that they are not stressed and and routinely scared. The meds might provide a little bit of a buffer for us that way, give us a little bit more wiggle room. But then, you know, as trainers, we come in and we go, okay, now we're going to help this dog learn new responses. Yeah, it's interesting. And I can absolutely see the attitude that you're responding to because whenever we have to uh, recommend you know a vet visit to talk about medications it's always a, a case of trying to convince people that that's the best option to go and I can I've definitely come across pe a lot of people that have an aversion to using medications so I, I can certainly see that and you know I've seen dogs that should have been on medications way way earlier um, but but maybe were working with trainers that um, didn't really have an understanding of of how that works. So I, I, I completely get what you're reacting to. Yeah, it's really heartbreaking. And I, and I don't think people intend to be cruel when they refuse to do it. But to me, it is it does seem like this unintentional cruelty to have an animal who is chronically anxious, easily startled, not ready to jump into life, you know, to improve their quality of life uh, as it could be because their owner has a thing against um, using medication. Well, I think that what a lot of people are worried about is that they're going to basically drug their dog up to the point where they're just completely dopey a little bit like um the end of what's it over the cuckoo's nest with jack nicholson you, right you know that their dog's right. just gonna yes. kind of not have any understanding of the world 
Yes. Yeah. And, and that is, and that's a good point to bring up. It's a really good point. And it's something that I think it's important that we uh, reiterate to people that that is not the goal uh, for the, for using the medications. We may see some sedation in the dog initially, but it's not the goal. In fact, one of the fun threads that we have in my fearful dog group on Facebook is this is my dog on drugs. And it's people just putting pictures and videos up of their dogs having a great time, uh, looking happy and engaged uh, while they're basically, you know, they're on they're on daily medication. Um, so it is an important thing to, to tell people that if we see that, and if they are concerned and their dog is dopey and they are sort of uh, overly sedated, uh, that that's a reason to call the vet and say, okay, uh, this is what I'm seeing. How long should I wait before we make a change? And that's something that our vet behaviorists here in the U.S. are – they are, are, are sort of our um, – the gold star, you know, that when, we're, when we have those kind of questions – uh, we can look to them and and find out whether or not we think is is three days too long? Is three days not long enough? Five days a week? How long should we wait before we decide to make adjustments? And I will tell you, Nick, that in all of the in the fearful dog group where we have thousands and thousands of members and hundreds of them have their dogs on meds, it is rare to have somebody say, "I regret putting my dog on medication." Most most people are just wish they had done it sooner. Okay, so beyond drugs, because we've we've spoken about that quite a lot. Because I think that, and I can see why. You know, it's such a controversial issue, and probably quite needlessly, as you've kind of highlighted. Beyond drugs, what can people do from a, a management and training perspective to help their fearful dogs? Well, I look at it from a, a, a three – I think of it in, in uh, three categories. And we talked about the first one, which is management. Mini- minimize or eliminate the amount of time the dog is actually experiencing fear, however that dog needs to be managed. So it may be that if the dog came from a puppy farm and only ever lived in a crate, maybe we give that dog a crate. Even though we want to give it the world, we give it a crate. Maybe we have dog street dogs. And maybe they're going to they're going to feel safer if they have an open area and places where they can hide um, if they feel like the, the need to. Um, so that's the one thing. Keep them feeling safe. The other thing is to change. Now we're getting into the training piece. Change. How before, they feel. before we get onto the training piece. Yep. Can I just what I think you're going to agree with this. One of the biggest or best pieces of advice i've always found or one of the biggest differences that i've always made with management is for dogs that get really stressed out going on walks i know sarah owings spoke about this as well is if your dog is is hates walks stop taking them out you know three or four times a day it, it it does seem fairly obvious however what we see there's two pieces to that one is that 
there's been, and rightly so, an emphasis on exercise and getting dogs out and about. So dogs need walks. Who's going to take the dog for a walk is you know, the, the sort of things when you're growing up with a dog, who's going to feed them, who's going to take them for a walk. The two things that we, we, we've been trained that dogs need. But it does seem obvious that that if they weren't enjoying it, number one, can you even tell whether your dog is enjoying it or not is a question. But the other thing is that toileting. Most people are not happy having their dogs um, urinating or defecating in the house. There's also a concern that if they let their dog urinate and defecate in the house while they're tra- while the dog is learning to be okay going out for walks, um, they're afraid that the dog will never become house trained. And that's not necessarily true. So I think there's that piece of it that people want to get, they need to get the dog out because they feel like they don't want the, they don't have a toilet area in the house. And that is actually a good point because it's one of the hardest things for people to sort of wrap their head around when it comes to management. Well, I wasn't even, uh, I wasn't even taking it that far. I just mean, I, I see a lot of people that are taking their dogs out that are very fearful and they're taking them out multiple times a day. And, and every time they take their dog out, it's a huge ordeal for that dog. And the, the dog's just never getting a chance to, to relax. Right. And I think people think that eventually the dog will just get used to it, for one. I mean, I think that's that's a common, a common idea as well. Eventually, they'll get used to it. And what else am I supposed to do? with this dog. I mean, isn't that what dogs like to do? So I, I think you're right. If, if the dog is, if the dog is scared going, going outside, stop making them go outside. But that's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is for the dog to be able to go outside, for the dog to be able to go outside for urinating and defecating and to go out and, and live in the world. Now, that said, there may be dogs that that is a a big, um, it's a dream and it may never be achieved. I was happy. I'm, my dogs are lucky. I happen to live in a rural area. There's not a lot of people. I don't live in an, a city. So I don't, my dogs don't have to ride down an elevator, walk through an apartment hallway and then end up on the street with people and buses and bikes and, and all of those things in order to go outside. I don't know whether, my dog um, could have could have gotten there, could have done that. That's why a lot of people go out when they live in urban areas are walking their dogs late at night or really early in the morning yeah, when so, there's nobody else out there. So um, to give an example of, of this, um, I worked with, uh, I still do, I work with a Spanish street dog and uh, his owner was convinced that she had to take her dog out, as so many people are, you know, three or four times a day. She wanted him to be getting exercise and enrichment. And uh, one of the first things I said to her is is to reduce the walks. I think she's taking him out once a day now, and the difference in his behavior is, is massive because he was just getting stressed, you know, so often throughout the day. And now inside she plays games with him, she does training with him, so he's still getting enrichment he's still having a good time he's just uh, not getting such frequent stress yeah yeah i mean i think people just don't know they they want to do right by their dogs they really do i think that all of 
that most of the people I talk to, I say to them, look, if your dog was, if a dog was going to end up being quote unquote normal, it would have been already because you're good. You're a good person. You're a kind person. You're a caring person. A dog is lucky to live with you. They just don't know, but that's what we do. I mean, that's, that's our job as trainers is, is we help people, um, sort of get that, uh, get that understanding and, and help them sort out that, yeah, it's okay, you know, not to do that with your dog. But, but I also think that, that we're also, um, again, and now this goes off on a whole other tangent, of course, but, you know, we are putting dogs into situations where they are going to have to be heavily accommodated. It's not just bring the dog, you know, they're, they're not a, a, uh, you know, sort of plug and play kind of thing. You know, here you go. Here's your dog. Have fun. We have a, a lot of these dogs now require a lot of accommodation. And I think it's quite remarkable to me how fabulous people are and how willing they are to make accommodations for them. It really does sort of renew my faith in humanity um, when I work with people who have these dogs because of what they are willing to do. Well, that's a brilliant segue into the third element, which is training. What what can people do from a training perspective to help their dogs with their fear issues? Well, number one is to find somebody like you. (laughs) (laughs) Very kind of you. Who understands fear-based behavior and how it works on uh, when we're dealing with the emotional concerns, uh, the emotional responses, and also just how behavior works and how we can uh, change the associations, how we can actually change how a dog feels about something, which is one piece of the puzzle. And then the other piece of the puzzle is basically giving the dog skills. And I remind people of this. They're scared. They're not stupid. And that what we need to do is just decide on certain behaviors that we need the dog to be able to perform. And it may be walk out the door. Can you walk out the door? Can you uh, get in the car? Can you walk down the street? You know, can you walk down? Can you take three steps walking down the street? We, We basically have to come up with the behaviors that are going to not only improve the dog's quality of life, but help the owner. Because living with these dogs can just be so overwhelming and emotionally draining when you have a dog who you can't even put a leash on, who won't come when you call them, who can't uh, stay in the room when guests come over, it's, it's hard, but we can give these dogs skills and they can learn them and good trainers can do it, uh, painlessly and do it in a way that not only gets us the behavior, but also gets us the, uh, new emotional response that we're looking for. So that instead of the dog feeling fear, the dog feels excitement and enthusiasm and whatever else is going on in there how how do you help the dog take those steps because so often i think people feel like the way to get a dog over its fear issues is is to physically you know pull them 
out of the house or physically pull them those first few steps or put them on the lead and keep them in the room you know there's an element of of well what we would call flooding right like you know just sit here and man up right uh so how do you get the dog to to do that how do you how do you work with that right right well Again, the the I I think that what people there's a couple of things probably in play. People think the dog will eventually just get used to it, and that they will learn that the thing that they thought was going to kill and eat them didn't end up killing and eat them, and therefore is okay. But unfortunately, the way that uh, nervous systems work and and the way that that learning works is that just because it didn't kill and eat you today doesn't mean it might not kill and eat you tomorrow and that it's really better <laughs> to not sit around and wait to find out and that is what that sort of misunderstanding is that because it didn't kill and eat them today doesn't mean that tomorrow they're going to be okay with it tomorrow they're still going to run i mean if you're the zebra on the serengeti if I'm not even sure our zebras on the Serengeti, but anyway, if you're <laughs> if you're a zebra out there, you know, and you, you don't stop and ponder whether or not the lion that didn't catch you or kill you and eat you yesterday isn't going to do it tomorrow, you're going to run. Um, and unfortunately for us, many of these dogs that we're working with, their brains are really good at that. They're really good at feeling fear. <clears throat> and what we need to do is change that. And so instead of the chronic feeling fear is we do it. And, and, and I mean, the, the, the technical jargon for what we do is we help them desensitize to stimuli in the environment and we counter condition them to stimuli in the environment, which basically means we gradually get them used to being exposed to something and not feel afraid of it. And at the same time, we teach them that that thing is a reliable predictor of something so incredibly awesome that they're thrilled to see it. So, for example, um, it it often is food, you know, the 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 delivery driver that pulls up into the driveway predicts the lady is going to run to the refrigerator and give me chicken. Isn't this wonderful? I even have a dog who runs and finds me when I'm sitting here like this to to look at me like, hey, lady, it's time to run to the fridge and give me chicken because there's somebody in the driveway. Um, there's that. Um, it can also be play. Um, my dog was less excited about food and more excited about somebody throwing frisbees for him. So when the scary monsters came over, they became a reliable predictor for him going outside and getting to chase frisbees. And so that's that's part of the process is changing what these things predict for the dog. But it's it's something that really does require trainers who are used to breaking it down and and looking at all of the different pieces of the environment and the situation that are impacting those responses yeah that's that's a great point you explained that really well um yeah what we would call antecedents right like what comes before the behavior and and so once we've figured those out we can counter condition we can change how the dog feels about about the the cue 
Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's and it and it's to the point where when you, I like to think of this um, working with this population of dogs as a good retirement uh, job because you don't move much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great point. You know, you, you I love watching people do agility and freestyle, and I think, wow, look at them running around. I spend a lot of time sitting on the floor, moving very slowly, and um, and. <sighs> How much of, of sorry to just, sorry I don't know if I cut you off there. I was going to say how much of this do you think is genetic? Because I feel like sometimes people get these dogs that are extremely fearful, and they kind of feel like, you know, is this is there any? The question I get asked a lot actually is, will he ever be normal? Is there is there any? They're kind of looking for is there any hope here? Yeah, again, unfortunately, we we don't have a microscope to know with many of the dogs. However, we do have breed standards. And it is it is the case that there are some breeds out there that we know are more likely than not to be um, more easily startled or less social. So there's that piece of it, and um, and, and that that's um, you know that's something we can factor in. And I've certainly had people uh, contact me who have a breed who written into the breed standard is not good with strangers, <laughs> or needs lots of um, socialization with people outside the family, which is. We, we know that kind of means, oh, yeah, these dogs are basically um, afraid of people that they haven't been exposed to a lot. And um, so there's that piece of it. As far as whether or not we can look at a, a dog uh, from uh, any puppy from a litter, I mean, we know there's going to be variation. That's That's how life works, that within any litter of puppies, there are going to be dogs who are going to be on one end of the spectrum or the other. There's going to be the really outgoing, gregarious, seemingly fearless puppy. And then there's going to be the one that sort of hangs back a little bit. And and in a perfect world, we would be um, having, you know, breeding the, the dogs who are more sort of, you know, in that mid-range of, of um you know, we're not, we're not, you know, we're seeing fewer of dogs who are more fearful, easily startled, who take more time, uh, who need more experience and more exposure. Uh, but that, that isn't so, so we don't really know. I mean, the short answer is we, we, we don't really know. We, anytime we get a dog, we're kind of rolling, rolling the dice, unless you go to somebody who breeds dogs and they have a good track record. And you can say, you know, here, here, my dogs generally, here's, here are my litters and here, here, here's what they do in the world. Um, you know, that said, it doesn't mean there aren't absolutely fabulous dogs out there. As I mentioned, the street dogs that I used to get from Puerto Rico, I thought that they made some of the best pet dogs ever. Um, just because of the fact that the ones that were being pulled off the streets were the ones that were just coming up to people and they were easy to get. Nobody was out there basically looking for dogs that have been stuck in, you know, meat trade dogs or puppy farm dogs or, you know, dogs that we know um, did not have a lot of 
uh, exposure early on. So I don't know, is any, I, I don't know about normalcy. And I was interested, just maybe on a, a little bit of a tangent here as well, when you have these kind of island populations of, of street dogs that so often get um, brought brought over, I was wondering, well, I don't know if... I, I don't know if this is your area or not, but what well, what is the situation here? Because we seem to be getting a lot of dogs that are brought over, and I don't know if there's a, a spay neuter release program or or what. But it seems like with an island population, you'd think that if you had uh, um, if you had people that were really motivated to to end the issue with street dogs over there, that that would seem quite feasible. Yeah, it. it- it would be if that if you're thinking of the island population as being um, isolated or a closed system, uh, and in some cases that is that may be the case, where the only dogs that are there are the dogs that are born there, and there are people who are working and doing the spay neuter programs. So there's. I think that is happening. And and as far as the Caribbean goes, there are a number of organizations that that's all they do is they go out and and run these spay-neuter programs. The other piece of it is educating the population so that they see value in having an animal that doesn't reproduce. Uh, And... Um, but but for some of these islands, it isn't a closed population. In fact, because in, in the case of Puerto Rico, which is a territory of the United States, you can puppy mill dogs are shipped for to be sold in pet shops in Puerto Rico. You can go into a pet shop in Puerto Rico. Remember, this is the tropics. And you can buy a, a Siberian Husky puppy, which is a breed designed to live in northern climates. Uh, but you will you will find them for sale. So there are people who are actually these. It's hard to get a handle on it because you can still go to a pet shop and buy a dog. Mm. Yeah, I, I hadn't really thought of that, and and also I guess. Well, if if it's anything like my experiences in in other countries, there's a difference in cultures where people often let their dogs just roam. Yeah, there's you know there's a cultural component, there's an economic component to it. I mean, if it's going to cost you a hundred dollars to spay or neuter your dog, and you know that may be a hundred dollars that you don't have to spend, um, and and then again there's the the cultural. Uh, piece of it. Recently, I was just down there in Puerto Rico, and I was talking to uh, a woman who has been involved in the animal welfare community, and she said that after the recent hurricanes, we just had a couple of rounds of hurricanes go through, it devastated the island, that there was actually a change in the population because people couldn't feed themselves. They didn't have food for themselves. And then they saw the value in not having more dogs themselves that they had to feed because the dogs were basically being fed whatever it was they could get their hands on. Maybe they fed them scraps. Maybe every once in a while they got bags of dog food or whatever. But there was a cha- she did see a change. So 
basically there was a reason, <laughs> you know, there was a reason now that people saw because they felt bad. They didn't want to starve their dogs. That wasn't, they're not cruel. Um, they just, before it never really mattered, they were able to sort of continue to feed the dogs and the dogs were living on scraps. But um, a lifespan for most island dogs, street dogs, you don't get many of them living past two or three years old of age. What do you think dog trainers could be doing better to help fearful dogs? I think that uh, being learning more themselves, being better trainers, understanding how behavior works, becoming really, really efficient at delivering positive reinforcement in whatever form it is that the dog prefers it. It may be food. It may be play. Being really good at that and modeling it for people. I, I love seeing these training videos of trainers who are way better trainers than me. I know it. I look at them. I think, oh, my gosh, that is so fabulous. And they always cut out that piece of the puzzle where they show the reinforcement. It just sort of looks like magic that the dog is doing all this stuff. And then they they cut out the bit where they've handed the dog the food or they've played the tug game, or they've thrown the frisbee, or they've done whatever. I think, I think that um, that would go a long way in in helping people um, model, you know, see it modeled, and then they feel less hesitant. This is this is how we do it. We are unabashedly generous with positive reinforcement. Uh, well, yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I, it's not something I'd thought of before, but I do notice that. I mean, one thing that I think everyone notices when you go on social media of any kind is people tend to uh, edit and tailor things to give off the image that they want to. And yeah, I that's interesting. I hadn't even uh, put two and two together on that one. Yeah, I I love it. I you know, I've often said to people, that's a great clip. Do you have the do you have the 5 seconds afterwards? Because I know you used food to train that behavior. I know that the dog is sitting there and that you reinforce them. Can I have that, you know, let's add that little piece onto it because people need to see that. When I was a kid, I remember training my dog um using food and thinking to myself, not that we had trainers at the time. I'm old enough now that there weren't really many dog trainers around. And if there were, I was probably lucky not to, to be exposed to them, given the way that a lot of training was done at that time. Um, but I remember thinking, I wonder how real trainers do this. Because it was so easy. <laughs> it was so easy to use food to get my dogs to do stuff. And I thought, surely, surely, it must be harder than this. And that Real trainers must not use food. Well, it took me about 30 or 40 years to learn, no, that is how real trainers do it. Real trainers use food. I was That's a great point. And I was listening to a very old podcast the other day. Um, I'll give it a shout out. Is uh, I was listening to Karen Wilde's uh, podcast, um, which she doesn't do anymore, with um, Jean Donaldson. And she was talking about being unapologetic about the use of food and how positive trainers have this thing where they're always talking about phasing out food. And it's like, it's like we still feel guilty about using it. 
Right, exactly. I mean, there's a certain there's a certain kind of irony, and I, I you see this. I also work um, using the same technology um, with kids with autism, and even within human. Uh, population, we have people who feel like there's something wrong with using something tangible, some kind of tangible positive reinforcement in order to reinforce behavior in kids. Now, meanwhile, mind you, as a professional, I'm getting paid. I'm actually getting a tangible positive reinforcer to do my job. And yet we have people out there who are, uh, uh, who think that no, they should do it for some other reason other than whatever it is, you know, uh, the opportunity to, to go buy a toy or, you know, to, to, to get, to get something that they like to eat. I and mean, everybody feels really, it's, it's a kind of a, I don't know whether it has to do with sort of a, puritanical background or whatever. I don't know where it comes from. But yeah, we really do sort of have this this idea that at some point you're going to get good enough at doing something that you're never going to want to get paid to do it again. And I just say that to people. I said, well, when you got really good at your job, did your boss say, hey, you're really good at doing your job now. I'm going to stop paying you for coming in and doing it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so where can people find out more about your stuff well i have um my fearfuldogs.com website and i also have a uh, facebook group called fearful dogs and let's see um those, those are probably the easiest places to to find me i'm i'm out there a lot on social media i am currently working on a course for um, uh, to be added to uh, the offerings on uh, Lori Nanan's uh, uh, website, LoriNanan.com, uh, which has several uh, online courses that people can sign up for, and I'm working on a, a, a fear course for that. Uh, but probably the FearfulDogs.com is is easy. Did you say that the uh, group was just called Fearful Dogs as well? It is. It's just called Fearful Dogs. It's a it's a group that's um, it's public, so anybody can read it. But I do have some um, requirements for getting in to comment in the group because one of the challenges anybody who's run a group on Facebook or any kind of social media knows the challenges of keeping conversations on track. And after trying to do it without having certain stipulations and requirements, um, I decided that it was going to be easier if people just understood that we had some guidelines and we had some rules. And um, But folks are welcome to check it out. It's There's a lot of people. We have vet behaviorists. We have vets. We have pet owners. We have really savvy pet owners um, and um, and dog trainers. Well, thanks for so much for uh, coming on the podcast. Well, thank you, Nick. Thanks for letting me just sort of, you know, waffle on about stuff. I loved it. <laughs> that's that's basically what I do as well. So no worries. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. Thank you. Hey, 
I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. It was a lot of fun talking to Debbie about Fearful Dogs. And uh, one thing that you can do is follow this discussion on. If you've got any questions, then head over to Facebook and search for Dog Talk with Nick Benger podcast discussion group. Put up any, post your questions, you know, and we can have a discussion about it there. Uh, that's basically what the group's for. And also, one way you can, or two ways you can help me grow this podcast and continue to uh, be able to provide them and, and do all of this fun stuff is leave a review on iTunes. That helps us to come up higher in the search rankings. And then, of course, there's always the old-fashioned way of just send this podcast to someone that you think might enjoy it because that really helps us out as well. And as always, if you want to grab the show notes for this episode, that's where I put all the links and uh, all the relevant stuff to the things that we discussed today, then you can head over to nickbenger.com slash Debbie hyphen Jacobs. All right. See you guys.